everybody. Welcome to the latest and greatest episode of Inside the Hexagon. I am your host, as always, Phil Anities, and alongside me is my co-host, Josh Molina. Josh, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Phil. Looking forward to another awesome opportunity to talk about Strike Force. Well, as we record this, it is a SummerSlam weekend. We saw the AEW debut of CM Punk, which was awesome. And then you actually drove from SoCal to Vegas for, for, uh, for SummerSlam and then drove back today. So that must have been, uh, I know we were talking MMA today and we don't talk about a lot of modern day stuff as much, but you know, that's, that's pretty noteworthy that you went there. Did you have a good time? Well, I didn't actually drive. I was the passenger with somebody who's uh, also a professional wrestling fan. So I was able to, you know, just sort of do that, but yeah, it was a lot of driving, but bro, I'll do anything to watch Matt Riddle win the tag team championship, you know, <laughs> <RK> um, bro. <laughs> um, well, you know, it, it's really cool. Cause you know, uh, it's a big venue. It's Legion stadium. It's Las Vegas. It's where the Las Vegas Raiders play. And uh, they haven't been to California since the pandemic and, and since they reopened. So it was a really cool opportunity to see them in this big stadium. So yeah, it was a lot of fun and a lot of MMA, you know, Brock Lesnar showed up and, you know, Nakamura is there, former MMA fighter, and Matt, Riddle, Matt Riddle's getting a big push. So, you know, it's definitely a convergence of, of you know, the sport we're talking about, too, at times. Yeah, and uh, Roman Reigns works the, the best guillotine in pro wrestling. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and, and, and uh, Bobby Lashley, too, former MMA fighter. Yes, you know, Bobby, so. former Strike Force fighter. Exactly. So, so yeah, there, there's a, good... a lot of a lot of real MMA moves and a lot of not-so-good MMA moves seen right. in professional wrestling these days. <laughs> right. Well, Bobby Lashley is a good segue because we are talking about Strike Force today. Inside the Hexagon is about walking through the major events, fighters, and milestones of Strike Force which was a very important and innovative MMA promotion that existed from 2006 until 2013. And on today's episode, we're going to be discussing Strike Force Henderson versus Babalu 2, which took place on December 4th, 2010 at the Scott Trade Center in St. Louis, Missouri. The main event, as you might have guessed, featured a rematch between Dan Henderson and Babalu Sobral. Also on the card, we would see a matchup that had fireworks written all over it in Paul Semtek's daily battling Hands of Steel, the comeback kid himself, Scott Smith. We'd also see Robbie Lauder, Robbie Lawler, excuse me, battling Matt Lindland, and then Bigfoot Silva would be locking horns with Mike Kyle, and Ovent St. Pro would be matching up with Benji Raddick in the opener. So this card does not disappoint. It's actually a fairly quick one, uh, so it's uh, it, it's a fun one to, to go over. But I did want to mention we are doing a bit of a change in our format. We, we realize that a lot of our episodes go longer than they probably should, so we're going to be doing some shorter upfront notes. We're not going to be doing the UFC champions and event breakdowns anymore. Uh, and we're going to really focus more on Strike Force because that's really what the show is all about. Uh, but I do want to mention Inside the Hexagon is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. And you can check out the other shows on the network at evergreenpodcast.com. But as we like to do, we do want to talk a little bit about the fallout from the previous Strike Force show, Diaz versus Noons 2, uh, which we had seen coming out of that. Nick Diaz elevated even more with a great win over KJ Noons. We also had a new women's bantamweight champion in Marluz Kunin, who had submitted Sarah Kaufman. In addition, Josh Thompson and Tyron, Tyron Woodley, Woodley excuse me, both got nice wins, positioning themselves for potential title shots in their respective weight classes. All right, as part of this new approach to our episodes in the hopes of kind of shortening them, we'll save again most of the fight-specific news for the main card fights later on. But we do have a, a few interesting tidbits to share here. As part of a promotional effort with EA Sports MMA, the video game that had just come out, 
four younger fighters would be mentored by four established veterans in advance of this event. Strike Force's fighter exchange program, as it was called, saw Jacare Souza, Mayhem Miller, Gegard Mousasi, and Luke Rockhold uh, take on Fernando Batega, Patrick Cummins, Max Martin Martinayuk, and Wayne Phillips under their wings. I don't know which fighters were working with which, but all four of them fought on the undercard with Phillips beating Batega and Cummins winning a fight with Max losing his. So kind of an interesting little program there. Kind of funny that they count Luke Rockhold as an established veteran. I mean, he was only a handful of fights into his career. Uh, but Josh, I'm sure that you thought he was way talented and experienced enough to be able to mentor a younger fighter, even at that young parts uh, point in his career. Well, anybody could see that Luke Rockhold would be the future of the industry. And Absolutely. he would be, well, he could have been, he should have been. Patrick Cummings, you mentioned that name. Yeah. That the dude that mouthed off to Daniel Cormier, or he was a replacement fighter. Oh. Do you remember that? Uh, I think Corm was it, wasn't it Daniel Cormier? Or Yes. Yes, yes. and Cormier just like destroyed him, but he got kind of a little bit of push after that. Anyway, that's the first time I've heard that name in like eight years. It's just, I remember him just getting hammered, and I'm pretty sure it was DC. Yeah, pa yeah. Patrick Cummins versus Daniel Cormier, Saturday, fe February 22nd, 2014 at UFC 170. It was a knockout in one minute, 19 seconds. And yeah. Yeah, nine times. <laughs> Patrick Cummins on Daniel Cormier, nine times out of ten, I can beat him. <laughs> and that was, that was several months after that fight. So he was still, <laughs> yeah. Uh, Daniel Cormier explains why Patrick Cummins made him cry. Wow. Interesting. So I, I guess like there was some sort of, they had, yeah, Cummins said that he broke Cormier and then, oh man, this is interesting. So supposedly, yeah, he uh, said he broke him during training when the two went at it and they went as far to say that he even made Cormier cry. Cormier mm -hmm. denied those claims but basically what he said was, this was around 2004. I lost my daughter in 2003. So I was having a whole bunch of personal issues. I called our head coach at the time, told him the story. Uh, and he was like, that's not, oh, that Pat had said, though. So that Cummins had said, he said, he was like, that's not what happened. What is he talking about? He's just lying. And I said, well, what happened? He said, well, you guys were simulating the Olympic Games, just as he said. And he beat me. He did beat me in a match. I said, we're going again. And the coach told me, no, the Olympics are over for you. You lost. And that's what freaked me out. And I ran out of the room. Yeah, I did cry. I was pissed off. I had to put myself in the mindset that I was wrestling for an Olympic gold medal and I had given it away. And then my coach wouldn't let me get my hands back on him. But we did compete against each other in reality one time. I was at 211 pounds and he wrestled it as a heavyweight. He was the number three heavyweight in the country and I beat him 7 nothing. So when we did strap on our boots and went and wrestled each other, I did beat him pretty good. And then, of course, he beat him in, in, the, uh, in the octagon. So yeah. Good, good call out, man. I, I, I had forgotten about that, but interesting, but yeah, that appears to be the same guy. So, all right. Uh, and then Herschel Walker, he was scheduled to fight Scott Carson on this card, but he had to pull out due to a cut under his left eye that required stitches. The bat would instead be moved to a January strike force card. Now I know Phil, you like to pride yourself on your deep, deep research for the show and our readers or our listeners benefit, but I, sometimes I like to dive deep too. So from, the Wrestling Observer, uh, you know, such a credible source, one of my, my daily readings, they talked about Herschel Walker, and there's a Daniel Cormier link here. From the Wrestling Observer, Observer Herschel Walker suffered a deep cut under his left eye that required stitches while taking a knee to the eye from Daniel Cormier. Did you know that? 
I, I guess they were I AKA did not know training. That. Yeah, I did so, not know that. I wonder if there's footage of those two, like just sort of training together. That that would have been really interesting. Losing Walker is a big blow because Strike Force and UFC are going head to head on television, and Walker and Dan Henderson were the key draws on the show for Strike Force. Walker's first fight drew a higher Showtime rating than Fedor Fedor Emelianenko Showtime fight, and for that matter, did better than Dan Henderson's Henlighting on CBS. So it's interesting that that Herschel was such a big draw, and uh, uh, so he never did fight again because didn't he only fight twice? No, he did fight that. Yeah, so when they rematched it, or when they did do the fight in January, that was his last MMA fight. So. But I think even me was 47. So, you know, unless you're Christian in AEW or Edge in WWE, it's hard to compete at that level in uh, at, at that age. But uh, I had no idea he was that big. of. I mean, I knew it was a big deal, you know, for obviously possibly the greatest college football player of all time. Uh, an what about, hey, as, hey, 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 Tim Tebow, come on. Yeah, you and I, yeah. you and I can agree. Yeah. <laughs> hey, I didn't see Herschel, uh, Herschel Walker almost make the major leagues for the Mets. Okay. Different podcast. I'll defend yeah. Tim Tebow later. Okay. Or make it to training <laughs> camp as a tight end. But, you know, then again, Tim Tebow didn't, wasn't an Olympic bobsledder either. So, you know, hey. Uh, but yeah, I had no idea that. that Don't uh, give Tim Tebow any ideas, please. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, seriously. Uh, I had no idea Walker was, a, was such a good draw. So that's a good call right there. Uh, but there was other fights lost on this card as well. Valentine Overeem, the brother of Alistair, also had to pull out from about uh, with Bigfoot Silva due to an injury. He'd be replaced by Mike Kyle. Interestingly, Scott Smith was originally slated to fight St. Louis native Jesse Finney, but was instead paired with Paul Daly. Finney was still going to fight someone on the card, but he also pulled out with an injury. So despite all the injuries, we still ended up with a really cool, uh, really, really entertaining card. And then one last little tidbit. Apparently around this time, then Bellator promoter Bjorn Rebney released some text messages to the MMA media that showed him trying to reach out to Scott Coker about doing some Bellator strike force champion versus champion fights. Coker was asked about it and said that he hadn't gotten any of his texts and that Rebney must have an old number. And he, that's not how he does business. And he really made Rebney look bad. Uh, you know, although, I mean, honestly, it was a pretty Bush league move on Bjorn's part and he wasn't really known for being uh, a super, I want to say super high character. I don't want to do a character assassination on him, but you know, he, he had a reputation for being a little under the table and this this type of stuff wasn't above him. So uh, but that would have been interesting. I mean, Bellator was really early on in its its, you know, its its run there. So, uh, you know, Strikeforce taking on Bellator, that, that would have been that would have been interesting. I don't know. I mean, you had like Eddie Alvarez and Hector Lombard. I mean, you definitely had some really, really good fighters over in Bellator. You had guys that had gone from Strikeforce to Bellator, like I believe Jorge Masvidal had and. So it was definitely an interesting, would have been an interesting uh, thing to see, a, a cool series, but, you know, we, we just never saw it. So Can we do a podcast on the name Bellator? I mean, I, I've never liked that name as a name of an MMA company. And I think that's part of the, one of the reasons why it's hard to catch on. You know, it's not, pro sports has letters, NFL, MLB, UFC, I don't know. I don't know. I, I, WWE, I, AEW, yeah. yeah. No, that's a, that's a, that's a legit point. I, I, I'm not really a big fan of the Bellator branding. I, I would agree with you. I'm not really a big fan of it either. And it comes across as a bit of a ripoff of UFC. Remember they used to do the gladiator thing and the, you know, they still use the same music all these years later, but it's kind of, kind of feels like a ripoff of that. So right. yeah, I, I, that's a good point. That's a good point. I don't want to do a separate podcast on that, but <laughs> that's a good point. <laughs> I'm, ju- I'm just kidding. I, I know. 
All right, so we do have two Challengers events uh, to dig into. We'll go into them quickly, but uh, Challengers, uh, sorry, Strikeforce Challengers, Bowling versus Volker saw the promotion return to the Save Mart Center in Fresno, California on October 22nd, 2010. Notable bouts on the card included Julia Budd defeating Shannon Nelson via TKO, Billy Evangelista taking a decision win over Wachim Spirit Wolf, Big LeVar Johnson knocking out Virgil's Wicker, and Bobby Volker taking out Roger Bowling via TKO. And then there was a, another Challengers card just two weeks before Henderson versus Babalu 2 on November 19, 2010. Strikeforce put on Strikeforce Challengers Wilcox versus Ribeiro at the Jackson Convention Complex in Jackson, Mississippi. On this card, Liz Carmouche TKO Jan Finney. Poor Jan Finney getting beat up again. Mary Saromsky's versus Wajim Spirit Wolf ended. In a no contest, six seconds into the bout when Spirit Wolf took an inadvertent poke to the eye and could not continue. How unfortunate is that? And then OSP decision to Antoine Britt and Justin Wilcox took a decision win over Vitor Shalin Ribeiro. Hey, uh, I just want to mention also from the Wrestling Observer, since we're sort of talking about Strike Force at this time, there's interesting talk here, according to Dave Meltzer, that what Strike Force was trying to do. So I'm just going to read directly from what uh, the Wrestling Observer newsletter said. Some plans are, are Strike Force is in talks about doing a 30 minute weekly show in syndication, which would be designed to hype the upcoming fights and show clips of the recent shows. The thing is, with so much MMA on television and it really not being all that strong of a television property and Strikeforce not having that big of a following, the show is going to have to have a unique idea and be promoted well to get any traction. The idea is weekend afternoon time slots like wrestling in the old days. They recognize they need something to promote their fights. But it's tough as MMA fans aren't used to that type of television and syndication hasn't been successful for anyone in more than a decade. UFC did a syndicated show a few years back and it got no traction. Did you know about that? Uh, did you hear they were trying to do kind of a 30 minute weekly promo show? That would have been interesting. No, and I don't and I I don't think it would have gone anywhere. I mean, at this point, YouTube is really in full force and I just don't see why anybody would sit down in the afternoon and watch a half hour show of highlights of fights that have already happened. Right. Uh, right. If you wanna, you know, maybe show like the Challengers events or something like that, maybe, but I yeah, I just don't I don't see that going anywhere and I, I think it would have been I just I mean, they did that before. They had an NBC uh highlight show before they got yeah. the CBS Showtime deal, you know, and, and I just, yeah, I don't see that going anywhere. Syndication with in sports is just, it doesn't work unless it's all new content. I just don't think that would work. And I, and syndication period, I just don't, I don't, I don't think it works taped. Yeah, I think you're correct. But what if they called it 30 minutes with Luke Rockhold? Would you well, watch Well, then it? they'd have at least one really <laughs> loyal viewer, you know, so Unfortunately, you wouldn't, they wouldn't be making any money off that. So that's that's true. But uh, all right, well we're uh, we're to the event itself, and these are some really fun fights to talk about. Strikeforce Henderson versus Babalu Two took place again on December fourth, two thousand ten, the Scott Trade Center in St. Louis, Missouri. The event drew seven thousand one hundred forty six fans to the arena, with an average of three hundred forty one thousand viewers on Showtime, culminating in a peak of four hundred sixty five thousand viewers handling commentary would be Mauro Ranallo, Frank Shamrock and Pat Militich all back on the call. I'm curious if we ever see Gus Johnson again. I have no idea if he comes back or not. We'll find out as we go along, but I'm not, I'm, I'm not disappointed if he doesn't. All right. 
Uh, undercard results. Uh, again, we mentioned a couple of these fights. Wayne Phillips defeated Fernando Batega via split decision at 170 pounds. 155 pounds, Justin Lawrence defeated Max Martiniuk via technical decision. The fight was stopped in the third round due to an accidental soccer kick by Lawrence, and it went to the judges' cards. At 205 pounds, Patrick Cummins defeated Terrell Brown via TKO, coming by way of strikes at 244 of the first round. 185 pounds, Cordez Coleman defeated Lucas Lopes via submission, coming by way of guillotine at 204 of the first round. At 155 pounds, Matt Ricehouse defeated Tom Aaron via unanimous decision. At 205 pounds, Mike Glenn defeated Lee Brousseau via TKO, come by way of strikes. And that at 185 pounds, Booker DeRouse defeated Colton Cole via TKO, come by way of strikes. And then finally, at a catchweight of 130 pounds, J.W. Wright defeated Josh Epps via submission, come by way of guillotine at 129 of the first round. All right, we are at the main card. And here we go. This is a 205-pound fight. All these fights are on UFC Fight Pass if you want to check them out. Ovince St. Pro defeated Benji Radish via unanimous decision. OSP was 8-4 and four coming in with five knockouts and two submissions. This was his sixth fight of the year. So he fought six times in 2010, and obviously that's a lot. He'd won his previous five fights that year, so he had done very, very well, which included a win over UFC veteran Jason Day as well as Antoine Britt at the aforementioned Challengers event two weeks prior. A former Tennessee volunteer football player, OSP was a star on the rise, and this was a big chance for him to prove just that. Benji Raddick was 21-5-0-1 with 15 knockouts and two submissions coming in. Now, previously, he'd torn his pec muscle and then suffered an infection, so it had been 15 months since he'd last fought. And in that fight, if you remember, he'd been knocked out by Scott Smith in what was a very, very entertaining bout. That's out of your. That's definitely worth your time to go out of your way to check out. Raddick was fighting on the same short notice as OSP and was moving up in weight. So between all of that, plus the inactivity, I mean, this would definitely be a tall order for the former IFL middleweight title challenger. All right. We, had a, we saw a takedown from Benji early on in the first, but OSP was able to stand back up pretty easily. And it was all downhill after that for Raddick. OSP got the better of the exchange on the feet, causing Raddick to, to dive in. OSP defended and got Raddick's back and began pounding on his opponent's head. I've seen refs stop fights for less. I mean, Raddick wasn't defending at all, but I somehow survived the round, probably a 10-8 round for OSP. But, Josh, I don't know what you think. I felt like he should the ref should have stopped the fight. Yes, I agree, Phil. The fight should should totally have been stopped. OSP was pounding him. I mean, it was almost a minute, and Benji Raddick did really nothing to respond. He he put his gloves up. He put his hands up to kind of block his ears. Uh, OSP was very aware of trying not to hit him on the back of the head, so he kept kind of swinging to the side. So, you know, I guess he wasn't getting full power, and Benji was still moving, but there was no way out. He took a ton of shots. There's going to be a lot of damage to Benji, you know, like like down the road because of those shots. It looked like the fight should have been stopped. Uh, TKO win. I mean, it was over. There was no way Benji could have come out of that. The, the round, you know, ended like that. But there was no way he was getting up. Let me just say I was struck by how good OSP looked. He's tall, long reach, muscular. Really, it reminded me of back then, me thinking – this guy looks a lot like John Jones in terms of his physique. You know, he could be somebody who could be uh, dominant in the sport. Um, so you know, I was just struck like this guy's a rising star, this OSP guy. And, uh, you know, Benji in the first round just looked out of his league. 
Yeah, I, I and I, the biggest knock against OSP in this fight was his gas tank. Like he, he just he was clearly getting tired, uh, but he was landing in the in the second round. He landed an uppercut very quickly and had Radix back within eight seconds of the start of the second round. And Morrow mentioned that Radix is probably better suited for 185 pounds where he normally fights. I mean, he was just being manhandled by OSP, and I agreed with Morrow on that. And just dominated the round, never let Radic up. The crowd was not pleased. They booed as OSP seemed to be tiring from the beating he was putting on Benji, but another 10-8 round for, for OSP, no doubt about it. Yeah, he, he was dominant, more of the same. I think what we did see here was OSP really lacking in finishing skills, submission yeah, skills. Yeah. He's a good athlete, good wrestler. He didn't really know what to do and in terms of, like, how do you finish this guy? And Benji's not going to quit. So I think that was struck by, I was like, you know, you probably should have finished this dude by now, even though you're dominating. That's kind of what I got out of round two. Yeah, I, I would agree with you. It was, it was clear that OSP didn't know how to go for the kill at this point in his career, but to Benji's credit, he came out swinging in the final frame, really let his hands go. And OSP, as I mentioned, he was clearly gas and Raddick just kept pressing. However, once again, he got caught with a punch and dropped and went back down to that turtle position that he had spent most of the fight in and, I mean, Militic called OSP. I noticed, I don't know if you caught this, Josh, but he called him Ovince St. Pierre instead of Ovince St. Pro, which is obviously an easy one and yeah. got corrected by Morrow on that. That was that was kind of funny. But the ref finally stood them up for inactivity, which drew a cheer from the crowd. And I, I by the way, on a side note, I think I saw Randy Couture on headset around the cage, which was interesting. But OSP was just so, so tired. Uh, but unfortunately for Ray, for Benji Razor Raddick, I mean, he just could not take advantage. And though he did get a takedown towards the end of the round, that's just and that's where end th- things ended. But I'm, you know, I might have actually given that final round to Raddick, but OSP definitely, definitely won, and he did get the decision. And I believe it was like 30-27, 30 30-26, 30 and 30-25 on the uh, on the score counts cards, which means he got three 10-8 rounds. Uh, two ten eight and one ten nine rounds, and then three ten nine rounds on on the judges' card. So, complete dominance. I don't know what fight the thirty to twenty five person was watching because I, I mean Raddick did enough in that last round to at least get a ten nine loss. I mean at the very least. So kind of kind of interesting, but I don't think he really cared. Uh, but this would be it for Raddick and Strikeforce. He would fight one more time four and a half years after this fight and lose that bout, uh, which he would end his career at twenty one seven zero and one. Uh, never an elite fighter. Raddick was definitely an entertaining fighter and somebody that I, I was actually in contact a little bit with when I was uh, in MMA and, you know, put on some some really entertaining fights. So my hat's off to him for a successful career. OSP would be back on a challenger's card twice in 2011 before making his big event debut against Gegard Musassi almost exactly a year after this card. All right, moving on to the next bout, 265 pounds, Bigfoot Silva. Defeated Mike Kyle V TKO come by way of punches at 249 of the second round. Bigfoot was 14 and two with nine knockouts and three submissions coming in. He had won seven of his last eight fights, which included a one and one record in strike force. The massive Brazilian had lost to Fabricio Verdun via decision and then beaten Andre Olofsky by decision. Mike Kyle was 18, seven, one and one with 12 knockouts and three submissions on his record. He was also on a good streak, having gone unbeaten in six fights. Ironically, as with Bigfoot, Kyle's last loss had been at the hands of Fabricio Verdun, and his last strike force fight, fight had also resulted in a win, which came on a challenger's card against a Bongo Humphrey. Uh, but you could see the huge, huge size advantage between these two right away. But Kyle didn't seem to care as he seated Bigfoot with a huge, 
huge right hand to the face early on. Bigfoot seemed to have his faculties and weathered the storm as Kyle followed up and he was, you know, kind of swimming his arms in and his legs in and turtling and moving and trying to get out of the way of Kyle's follow-up. And uh, Kyle did land a lot of strikes from the top, but Kyle, uh, but Silva survived. But that was really it for action in the first round as Bigfoot was on his back trying to mitigate Kyle's offense throughout the rest of the round. Yeah, Kyle caught him with a really good shot, and it was really dramatic, and Bigfoot went down to the ground, but he did his jujitsu thing. He, he got on his back, and he, he caught him, he brought him in, and I think Kyle just kind of punched himself out. Uh, this was just a, a mismatch. Uh, Bigfoot is just too big, too heavy. Yeah. There was nothing Kyle could do, even though he caught him flush on the chin. He, I don't really think he hurt Bigfoot. I think he just sort of surprised him, and Bigfoot went down, and uh, I don't think Bigfoot was ever like out of it it sort of reminded me as big as kyle was swinging down trying to finish wildly and bigfoot was covering up and kind of pull him into his guard it sort of reminded me of like you know when i wrestle with my son or something like like yeah he's on top and everything but but i'm in full control the whole time bigfoot just felt like like he could there was no way this fight was going to end and i don't think he should have been in the ring with bigfoot we're going to find out what happened in a second but it, it just—it was a mismatch. Yeah, I mean, Kyle obviously had the speed advantage, of course, and he used it to his—he used it to his advantage in the first round. In the second round, which let's jump into that, Kyle's confidence only grew when Bigfoot went for a very sloppy takedown right away in the second round. Silva did land a nice little punch, but Kyle just smiled. Uh, so I felt like Kyle felt like he was better on his feet, and but then you know that's the thing—it's like small can beat big but they have to stay out of the way. They have to, they can't get within the grasp. And if a big guy like Bigfoot Silva, who's a BJJ, a legit BJJ black belt grabs you and can take you down, which is what happened next. I I mean, he outweighed Kyle by 44 pounds at the weigh-ins and he cuts weight to make 265 pounds. So as Pat Militich pointed out, he was probably 60 pounds heavier than Kyle after rehydrating. And Kyle is normally a light heavyweight, so he, you know, he cuts weight to make 205. So now he just didn't have to cut weight. But that means that he was, again, he could have been outweighed by 60 pounds by the time they got in there. And that is just, it's unless you are just so much faster and have so much more punching power that, you know, that's, it's just not going to work. And if the guy can survive and get his hands on you like Silva did, you know, that that's going to be it. And that was the beginning of the end for, for Kyle. And I mean, he just couldn't compete with Silva's size advantage when he was on his back. And especially again, Kyle is not known as a submission guy and you've got a BJJ black belt, like probably 280 pounds on top of you. I mean, come on, man, what are you going to do? And Bigfoot cinched on an anaconda choke, which Kyle got out of. I thought he might've had him, but the bigger man was able to advance position at will. Once he got full mount, he rained down some very heavy, heavy punches. And you could see kind of what you were saying earlier, Josh, that it never looked like Bigfoot was in trouble. You could just watch Kyle and just see him. All right, he's okay. He's all right. He's yeah. Okay, stop the fight. Like he just, mm-hmm. he just started eating punches and and that was it. But a great comeback uh, for Bigfoot and and a lot of respect between the two of them after the fight, which was good to see. Especially, you know, Kyle known for being something of a dirty fighter and had pulled some dirty tricks in in Strikeforce and the UFC and other promotions as well. So, uh, it was it was cool to see them just have so much respect for each other after the bout. Yeah, you you said it. I hate to be petty. What's up with his eyebrows? I've said it before. <laughs> I just you're an MMA fighter. You're tough. Why do you have to do your eyebrows? I don't get it. <laughs> well, maybe maybe he's got a unibrow and he just doesn't want everybody seeing that. You know, so he looks like he should be in a boy band. Come on, it's fighting. Maybe, 
Maybe he was, but <laughs> uh, but both these guys will be back in Strike Force with Bigfoot being up next for Fedor and Emelianenko in a ne- another heartbreaking but very memorable bout. All right, the next fight, 185 pounds. Robbie Lawler defeated Matt Lindland via KO, coming by way of punches at 50 seconds of the first round. This is a quick one. Mm-hmm. It's going to take me longer to go through the intro to get to the fight than it is for the fight <laughs> itself, but. Matt the Law Lindland was 22-7 and seven with eight knockouts and seven submissions coming in. The former Olympic silver medalist in wrestling had gone 1-1 one one in strike force with a loss to Jacare Souza and a win over Kevin Casey. He had been scheduled to take on Luke Rockhold in strike force a couple months prior to this, but shockingly, Rockhold had injured his shoulder and had to pull out. Can't believe that. Robbie Lawler was 17-6-0-1 with 14 knockouts and one submission. How crazy is that? 14 knockouts and 17 wins. He had alternated wins and losses in his last four bouts with losses to Jake Shields and Bob Sobral, but with spectacular wins over Scott Smith in Elite XC and Melvin Manhoef in Strike Force and one of the greatest comebacks, uh, if not in MMA history, at least in Strike Force history. But again, don't blink on this one. Lindland, for some reason, I don't understand this, decided to stand with Robbie uh, from the very beginning. I don't understand why he didn't shoot immediately. Just to, It just didn't make any sense. I mean, I could see him, you know, maybe trying some things out on the feet, but he did get tagged a couple times without Robbie following up. So he absolutely had an opportunity to shoot in after getting tagged, and he didn't, and that would be the law's undoing. Robbie threw a three-punch combo, landing a right uppercut to start off with, missing on a left straight, but then nailing Linlin with a right hook that dropped him. And it was – I had to watch it, rewatch it like five or six times, but he got caught and drops face first and then immediately like almost like he'd been like f5'd and then like flipped over on his back like he was waiting for a you know a shooting star press or something like that like it it was like he got in position and right when he flipped over onto his back just in time he catches a falling hammer fist to the chin from lawler which put his lights out and robbie threw his hands up at the ref as he dove in like all right, are you going to stop it? And then was nice enough to put Linlin's legs together, like nice and organized. Like when, when a guy gets knocked out and they go all stiff, um, I've seen other fighters, although it's been a long time, but I've seen other fighters kind of put their opponent's legs together. It's just, I don't know, it helps with the recovery. I, I don't quite understand it, but um, you really, you know, listeners, you really need to look this up because it is one of the most brutal knockouts that you'll see. And Linlin was in really bad shape. I don't think he knew where he was. And it took him quite a while to get up off the mat. It was it was actually kind of a scary scene, but what a w- knockout win for Robbie Lawler. Yeah, this was a spectacular performance by by Lawler. I mean, you described the action. I don't understand Linland. Most wrestlers, they, they you know their their bodies are really tight. They're cut. Uh, he, he did not have that kind of physique coming into this fight. Nor which, to did, be fair, he, I, he never he never did. And yeah. I don't think Linland he wasn't a body guy. He was never going to be. He was a grinder. You know, he was never going to have, you know, you know, I doubt Dan Henderson did a lot of weightlifting. I just think he had good genetics and always had like a, you know, his body looked good. Linland's just one of those guys. I don't think he ever, whatever he did, I don't think he was going to look good. But anyways, go ahead. Yeah, no, it's just saying, you know, visually it, it looked like Lawler was going to knock him out in 50 seconds. Uh, and I, I don't understand, like you, why he decided to uh, trade with him instead of do what got you there, which is take him down, try to take him down. We know the only way to beat Robbie Lawler and you have a really good chance of actually beating him is on the ground, even though he's, he's a lot better now than he was back then. 
So it just didn't make sense to me. Maybe he's trying to tire him out, but there was only one way that this was going to end, but you, you can't box uh, Robbie Lawler. You're going to, you're going to lose, you know? So, so I think that was a big, big mistake. Brutal knockout. Um, you, what you could see right away, Linlin with his style, that's exactly how it was going to end. Yeah. Just a p- very poor decision-making process for, uh, from a strategic perspective by Matt Lindland. Uh, Lollard would, would earn a middleweight title shot against Jacques Ray with this win, which would take place the following January, less than two months after this card. But this would be it for Matt Lindland in Strikeforce. He would compete one more time, losing by submission in Europe in 2011 before hanging up his gloves, ending his career at 22-9. and nine. And, You know, again, respectable, successful career for sure. All right, at 170 pounds, Paul Daly defeated Scott Smith via KO, coming by way of punch. At 209 of the first round, Paul Daly was 25-9-2, coming in with 18 knockouts and two submissions. The British slugger had won six of his last seven fights, with the only loss coming to Josh Koscheck in the UFC. We've talked about this on a previous episode, uh, but if listeners, if you remember, this was the fight where a very frustrated Daly took a swing at Koscheck after the final bell and got banished from the UFC for life. As a result, uh, Daly had won both his fights since leaving, which included a decision win over Jorge Masvidal a couple months prior. And I did want to mention in, in an interview with MMA Weekly prior to this fight, Daly stated that he wanted to dispatch Smith quickly and then scrap with B, with KJ Noons. He also mentioned wanting to fight Nick Diaz and Tyron Woodley. Scott Smith was 17-6 and six coming in, which included at least 10 stoppages. Some of his wins don't record how the fights ended, so I don't have the exact number. Uh, he, had f- also, he had fought Kung Lee twice in his last two fights, winning the Miracle in San Jose before losing in his most recent bout. As always, uh, Scott Smith was, was always going to be an entertaining fighter. He was the epitome of killer be killed in the fight game. But Josh, are you ready for this? I will always have the miracle in San Jose, no matter what. <laughs> yeah, no one can take that away from you. You're right. So, uh, but Daly making his Strikeforce debut wore a shirt to the fight, that, or I'm sorry, to the uh, to the ring that said "Puss Out Fightwear." So that was a a sponsor of his. Um, you know, back when I was working in MMA, I was constantly every time I would watch a UFC or Strikeforce card, I if I didn't already have the the sponsor written down i i had and i still have the list i have this excel spreadsheet with every mma sponsor that i came across i would look them up and see if i can make a contact with them and i got some work out of it i did did some pr and some content development for you know for some different brands like rev gear i worked for rev gear for a little while and some other brands but i would reach out and try to you know if i was getting trying to when i was working with lyle beer bomb i'd try to get sponsorships uh, try to get some sponsors into the EA, Sport, EA Sports MMA video game. And then, like I said, I would reach out and see if uh, they were looking for any PR help and that sort of thing. But I do not remember Puss Out Fight where I'm guessing it was a UK-based brand, but uh, uh, being that it was Paul Daly. But, yeah, I do not remember that. Uh, but the two spent the majority of the first minute feeling things out with Semtex landing a nice right leg kick to Smith's lead leg. The Brit then landed a 1-2 combo that dropped Smith. And, I mean, he was able to get back up, but Hands of Steel was clearly still hurt. Smith recovered, but then started getting tagged with left hands. He lunged forward, and that would be the end as Semtex blasted a left hook to the chin, and there would be no comeback tonight for Scott Smith as he face-planted out cold. The announcers and the crowd erupted, went crazy at another highlight reel finish. Yeah, he caught Scott Smith with a a short left hook to the uh, temple, and it was over. It was done. 
Scott Smith, he felt like Ric Flair, man. Oh, Just yeah. Face yeah, first. Yeah, like the, the Fosbury flop, like face first. Yeah, absolutely. Good call. Um you know, I think what we saw here is just, uh, you know, it's really nothing to do with Scott Smith. I mean, Scott Smith is who he is. He hits really hard. He's he's really tough. But Paul Daly is an underrated MMA fighter. Uh, he will not go down with a great legacy because he did not spend most of his career in the UFC. But he's really good. You know, he's just a different level fighter. And he was just too fast. He's way faster than Kung Lee. So Scott Smith coming off the Kung, Fee, Kung Lee fights, he's not ready for Paul Daly's hand speed, okay? Uh, Kung Lee does not have good hand speed as it relates to Paul Daly. The other thing was uh, the footwork. So so uh, Paul Daly's not throwing those roundhouse kicks like Kung Lee, but his footwork, he's, he's doing some real boxing footwork in there. He's back and forth. He's side to side. He's giving him angles. And Scott Smith just could not keep up. He could not catch up. There's no, I mean, obviously, if he hit Paul Daly, yes, he would have knocked him out, but he really was not going to have a chance to hit Paul Daly. Paul Daly is just too skilled, too athletic, too agile, and too fast. So even though I was not happy about seeing Scott Smith get knocked out that way, it really wouldn't matter who it was. That kind of knockout, you feel bad for the fighter. I did feel good that Paul Daly really did a good job here. You know, he really finished. He really finished Scott Smith just like he should. He showed the difference in skill level. And, uh, uh, you know, I think Scott Smith can beat him one out of ten times. We'll never we'll never know. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm kind of – so I'm looking up – I'm looking him up, uh, Paul Daly. I mean, so as of today, uh, which is August 22nd, Sunday, August 22nd, 2021, he's 43 and 18 and two with two draws. 34 of his wins – 34 of his 43 wins come by knockout. So obviously one of the the biggest hitters in the welterweight division, but to be fair, if you look at who he's lost to, I mean, most of his, most of his wins have come against guys that he was clearly better than like, Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, he does have, he beat Lorenz Larkin. He knocked him out. Brennan Ward. He knocked him out. Uh, I'm kind of scrolling down to see if there's any, I mean, Scott Smith, he did beat Jorge Masvidal by decision. Uh, he beat, he knocked out Dustin Hazlett. He knocked out Martin Campman. That's a, you know, that's a, that's a really solid guy yeah. as well. Um, Dwayne, L- Dwayne Bang Ludwig, he knocked him out. So that's obviously a, a big one. And then uh, let's see if there's anybody else that really jumps out. No, there's not really any other big names, but then you look at his losses. He lost to Pat Healy. He lost to Jake Shields. He lost to Nick, the goat Thompson. He lost to Josh Koscheck, Nick Diaz, Tyron Woodley, which I'm kind of spoiling future future events. Douglas Lima, Rory McDonald, John Fitch, Michael Page. I mean, most he's just he was not an elite fighter. I mean, he didn't beat elite guys. He bought he beat guys that were on his level, which was like what well, if he was wrestling, we'd say he was like an upper mid carter. But he was not an elite guy. He lost to every big name that he fought, except maybe like Lorenz Larkin and Jorge Masvidal, like a few other guys that are not, you know, I mean, Hey, I love Jorge Masvidal as a fighter, but he's not an elite, you know, he's an elite level talker. He's an elite level personality, but he's not a, you know, he's not a champion, you know? And so, I mean, I guess, well, I guess he's a BMF, <laughs> unofficial BMF champion, but um, yeah, man, I, 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 so I love watching Paul Daly. Like I love watching him as a fighter, but he was not an elite guy. And so he'll go down as one of the greatest strikers 
in the welterweight division's history, one of the greatest knockout artists, but kind of like Melvin Manhoff, he's not, you know, he's a great striker, but he's not a great, he's not a great MMA fighter. You know what I'm well, saying? Well, uh, um, I think he's a lot like Alistair Overeem. I guess Alistair's probably a little better, but you look at what, 43 and 18. I mean, that yeah. guy's made the walk that many times. Yeah. I mean, I think longevity is is key, but you're right. Um, you know, he can never win the big one, uh, so to speak. Uh, he was he was never, uh, you know, a champion at least in you know Strikeforce or, or the UFC. I, I don't know if he won some other sort of regional thing or something overseas. But you know, he I thought he was very good. But the, Paul Daly's biggest disadvantage was he cannot wrestle. Yeah, and he's so not, the he's guys, not a ground guy. The guys you mentioned beat him because once you take paul daly to the ground you know i i i say 50 50 you and paul daly on the ground phil i mean that's <laughs> which that's he's a... only which to be fair he's only been submitted six times out of all those fights yeah, most yeah. of the majority of his losses have been by decision so it's like if you can avoid his strikes long enough and wrestle him you're going to probably beat him but to, to answer your question he is a former cage rage uh, welterweight champion and a cage rage British welterweight champion. So he's won, you know, at least a couple of belts and cage rage is a legit, uh, legit promotion for sure. But yeah, just, uh, yeah, just, you know, issues. And, and um, he's had some weight, weight issues over the years and that sort of thing. So, I mean, he's not going to go down as an all time great, but he's going to go down as an all time highlight real guy for sure. So, yeah. but uh, we would see more of him after this bout. K uh, Daly said he wanted KJ Nunes next and then Nick Diaz, uh, we would not see him in KG, but we would see him in Nick Diaz in a very, very memorable fight. Uh, so they would uh, end up, he would end up earning that title fight against Diaz. Uh, Smith, for his part, he would be back the following July in Strikeforce to take on Tarek Safadine. All right, it is main event time. Here we go. Dan Henderson at a 205 pounds defeated Babalu Sobral via KO, coming by way of punches at 153 of the first round. So another quick one. Coming in, Babalu was 36-8 with five knockouts and 18 submissions. The Brazilian had won six of his last seven fights, which included winning and losing the Strikeforce light heavyweight title. He'd beaten Bobby Southworth via cut for the title and then lost it in his next fight to Gagard Musassi, I believe, in a minute. And then he'd beaten Robbie Lawler by decision in Los Angeles prior to this. Dan Henderson was 25-8 with 11 knockouts and one submission. Uh, he'd lost to... I'm sorry, uh, 11 knockouts and one submission as he headed into the cage. Wanted to point out, so all the guys, you know, we're breaking down how many wins they have and how many finishes. 25 wins, he's only got 12 finishes out of those 25 wins. So Dan Henderson was as, you know, great of a fighter as he is, one of the most decorated fighters. I mean, won titles in UFC, Pride, and Strike Force. The only fighter, I believe, that won uh, titles in all three of those promotions. I mean, just an amazing uh, you know, he, ne he doesn't get talked about as far as being on, like, Mount Rushmore, but as far as winning titles goes, I mean, Dan Henderson's, one, like, I, th I think he's the most decorated fighter in history as far as just, again, longevity and winning world titles in various promotions. So Did he? I, I don't mean to uh, disagree here or just correct me, but what title did he win in the UFC? Oh, you know what? You're right. You are right. Yeah. Uh, you are absolutely right. Let me, yeah. uh, I'm going to, as we're talking, I'm going to, I'm going to look him up, but. I mean, uh, I remember I he, he got Anderson Silva and then, but Anderson, I think. Yeah. Be actually beat him. I want to say yeah. beat him twice. So uh, he won the strike force light heavyweight title. Um, and he was the last welterweight and middleweight champion in pride. So you're right. I, I apologize. I was wrong about that. He was the UFC 17 middleweight tournament champion. Oh, okay. So he did win a, 
a tournament. He also won the King of Kings 1999 Tournament Championship and the Pride Welterweight Grand Prix Tournament Championship as well. Challenged for the UFC Middleweight Championship twice. Also challenged for the UFC Light Heavyweight and the Strikeforce Middleweight titles as well. He was the first mixed martial artist to hold two titles in two different weight classes concurrently in a major MMA promotion. At the time of his retirement after UFC 204, he was the oldest fighter on the UFC roster. I want to look at that that UFC 2, I'm sorry, UFC 17 um, tournament real quick. So he beat Carlos Newton via uh, a split decision. Okay, yeah, so he won this one-night tournament. So he beat Alan Goes via NAS decision. Carlos Newton beat Bob Gilstrak via submission. And then they had the they had the, the, the finals that night, and Henderson beat Carlos Newton via split decision. So he wasn't a traditional champion, but he did win a one-night tournament in the UFC. So I don't, I don't so I guess you – I don't know if you could like say he, that he won, like he won title, uh, won a title in the UFC. Yeah, you know, it's like he won a bunch of titles everywhere else and won the UFC King of the Ring. That's nothing to be. So he, I mean, he won, he won this this middleweight tournament, and then the same night, Frank Shamrock submitted Jeremy Horn with the middleweight title on the line uh, in the main event. So, uh, kind of interesting that I mean that would have seemed to have set up a fight between Dan Henderson and Frank Shamrock. Uh, and, but you know, which that would have been an interesting fight, but we, we would not see that. So interesting. All right. But prior to this bout, oh, and we, we got to get back to, to Dan. He'd lost to Jake Shields in his last fight, but he'd beaten Husamar Pajaris, Rich Franklin, and Michael Bisping in his last three fights in the UFC prior to the Shields loss. Prior to that Shields loss, or I'm sorry, prior to this bout, Henderson said that a prescribed medication had made his weight cut for the, the Jake Shields fight really difficult and had really zapped him. I don't remember or I'm sorry, I don't know if you remember this, Josh, but uh, they were saying during the the fight that he had cut like 18 pounds in a day or something like that. Like he'd come to uh, Nashville kind of heavy and he'd cut 18 pounds. And, you know, I, when you cut that much weight, it just, it zaps you and you just, it's really hard to perform up to snuff. And he hurt Jake early on and then just the basically rest of the fight just kept getting taken down. He'd been having back trouble and all that stuff. But now he's off his medication. He's back up to 205 pounds. And he said that he felt a lot more comfortable at that weight. He would say that, you know, 205 or 185, yes, he preferred 205 because he didn't have to cut weight. Uh, but he was also, you know, like weighing in at like 190, 199 pounds, you know, 200 pounds, that sort of thing, uh, which is, uh, you know, then you have guys cutting weight to make 205. Like Tito would cut like 20, 25 pounds to make 205. So obviously Dan's going to be a lot smaller than a guy like that. But as the title of the card suggests, this was a rematch. Hendo and Babalu had battled in the finals of the Rings King of Kings tournament on February 26, 2000, uh, which was this was the final night of the tournament. It actually started in late 99, and on that night, Henderson beat, listen to this, UFC and Pride veterans Gilbert Ivel and Antonio Rodrigo Nagara to earn a finals berth against Babalu. I mean, that is an impressive, impressive performance to beat Ivel and Nogueira and then yeah. beat Babalu in the finals that you beat those three guys. I mean, those are all legit guys. I mean, uh, Nogueira is obviously former pride heavyweight champion. And I believe an interim UFC heavyweight champion, a, a, if he's not already a hall of famer, he will be Gilbert. Ivel was a very, very dangerous striker. And then Babalu was, you know, obviously a great fighter as well. And then Babalu on his side, he had beaten Mikhail Ilyukin 
who I had never heard of, but he was he had a really good record at that time. And then Kiyoshi Tamura, who I remember for Pride, he was a, a decent fighter. And so this was, their fight was a very grappling heavy affair, very few close finishes. And in the end, the American got the majority decision in a very, very close fight that was early on in the careers of both competitors. And you know, now, now Babalu had a chance at revenge. Uh, but the winner of this bout would earn a light heavyweight title shot against Feijiao. Uh, it's interesting to note that Babalu was was actually the next in line. He was going to get a light heavyweight title shot, but King Mo was a close friend of his, and he said no, and he was the champ at that time. So he said no, he wasn't going to fight him, but then King Mo fought Feijiao and got got finished. And so Babalu was kind of left holding the bag, like, so maybe you should have just waited that fight out, and then you would have taken on Feijiao. But instead... He now was going to take on Dan Henderson, and the winner of this fight would get a light heavyweight title shot against Feijiao. But I noticed, you know, Henderson, not a great technical striker. I mean, he was very clear early on, and he was known for really loading up that right hand and, you know, that was nicknamed the H-bomb. And, and you know, but Babalu, a trained kickboxer, looked way better on his feet. But it didn't matter. There were some power shots that, that hurt Babalu long enough uh, and enough for him to, you know, he felt like he had to grab for a leg, which turned into Hendo getting top position in half guard. And from there, it wasn't quite the level of the punch that Henderson landed on Michael Bisping. Remember when you know, the UFC, famous UFC 100 knockout, when he knocked yeah. him out on his feet and then as he was laying prone on the ground, he did that like kind of falling forearm mm-hmm. to the chin. It wasn't yeah. quite as good as that, like, falling for him, but the punch that he – I mean, you could basically see Babalu's eyes cross and a couple more shots like that, and it it was over. I mean, Henderson just unloaded on Babalu, and it was a, a pr- pretty easy win for him. Yeah, I mean, this was a mismatch. Uh, Dan Henderson, just too big. Uh, it, Babalu's good, but – Dan Henderson just too powerful, and I don't know how I don't know what the game plan here was for Babalu to win this. Henderson is too strong, too powerful. I don't think Sabral's really extra quick, or you know, got a Jake Shields jujitsu game if he can take him down. And Henderson just kind of caught him. Um, I want to say something about the Jake Shields fight that that makes sense because I think Dan Henderson should beat Jake Shields even back then. Uh, he's just you know. A bigger and a harder hitter he should have won so it makes sense i i don't think it's an excuse to hear that there was something going on with his weight and he was fatigued that kind of explains why he was so tired the second half of that fight yeah yeah i i think it was a legit a legit legit point for him to make but uh you know, as promised, Dan Henderson would get his title shot. He took on Feja the following March, so we'll be covering that. This, however, would be the end of Babalu's run with the promotion. He would fight three more times in his career, winning one and losing his final two fights in Bellator, which ended his career with a 27-12 and 12 record. I do want to remind the listeners, if you haven't already checked it out, we do have a very revealing interview with Babalu in the archives. He talks about a lot of the, the he's, you know, dealing with blindness and just uh, one of his eyes and just a lot of the, the physical toll. Um, he, he thinks that he has CTE and, and all that stuff, but we had a very li- enlightening conversation with him. So you have, if you haven't already, make sure you check that out in the archives. But, uh, but that is, uh, that is Henderson versus Babalu too. No fighters pop for drugs of abuse or performance enhancers after the event. Um, we were not able as with, as it was always with St. Louis, they would not release the, uh, the salaries. So we don't know what anybody got paid there, but paid for there. But obviously, uh, this was one of the most exciting cards in Strike Force history. It was the first Strike Force event where four main card fights ended in a knockout. Uh, OSP stamps him, stamped himself as a fighter to watch. Lawler got back in the win column with a huge KO 
and Strikeforce had a new star on its hands in Paul Daly, and Hendo was back. This is what Strikeforce had signed up for when they got him. So big stuff. Josh, what what did you think? Well, it was very entertaining show to see these kind of knockouts. I think the fights were mismatches. I kind of knew who was going to win each fight. So I don't think there were any good fights where it was just back and forth and, oh, my goodness, the guy finally put him away. So I don't know. It, you know, it was entertaining. It, it, I, it, it I had the not... action. It had the action but lacked the drama, right? Yeah, right. It, definitely. If these fights ended the same way in the final round, it had been one of the best cards of all time. But it was really quick. And I don't know. I, I just uh, have a love-hate relationship with Scott Coker and his booking. I just don't know that I liked a lot of these these the booking decisions here, other than he said we're going to have some knockouts probably. Um, you know, it's an interesting card. It was exciting. Uh I, I don't really have much more to, to say about that. I was disappointed that Scott Smith couldn't get it into a later round, but it was what it was. I mean, I guess I guess what I'm trying to say is I think about it here is those two knockouts with Matt Lindland and Scott Smith, those to me kind of took away the the excitement and fun of the show because that's like crossing the line where they were knocked out so bad that it almost went into something even you know, it's what they say. You put your life on the line every time you step into the cage. They they put their life on the line, and, and it was just brutal. So I guess I walked away just sort of thinking, God, that man, that's tough. Those were bad. I felt bad for those guys. Yeah, I could see that. And like I said, the uh, I mean, the finishes were amazing, but the fights themselves weren't amazing. They were too quick. So I, I, I get what you're saying. And, yeah, it was – yeah, Babalu and Smith, I mean, they were both – that was pretty brutal not or and never mind Linlin. you know i mean those were just three really brutal knockouts so i, I i'm with you and the mike kyle one was bad too so kind of pride level not not a, not quite pride level mismatches but it was yeah i, I can see your point uh, i did want to ask you kind of on the side um you know did, I, one of the one of my issues one of my issues with boxing is just the utter watering down of the divisions there's you know super welterweight and junior welterweight and junior featherweight. I mean, you've got a different champion every three pounds. It's just, it's way too much, too many organizations, all that stuff. And I'm glad that MMA hasn't followed suit in that, but I do think that there would be, I would be fine with there being a, a 195 pound weight class. And you think about guys like Frank Shamrock, uh, Dan Henderson, Babalu, Gegard Musassi, King Mo. I mean, there's a phase There's so many guys. I don't know about phase but there's so many guys uh, Vanderlei Silva, you know, the uh, uh, Rich Franklin. There's so many guys that went back and forth between 85 and 05. I think it would have made sense to have an 195-pound division. So I want to put it to you, Josh, in the same way that Strikeforce really put women's MMA on the map and then finally that convinced Dana to do it. And, he, you know, not not stole the idea, but basically took, took that on. Uh, finally, in reverse course, do you think if Coker had prov- promoted a 195-pound class that – had been successful. Do you think for strike force that that would have been something that may, maybe would have changed the course of MMA history and Dana would have jumped on that. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, um, I'd have to give it some thought. The good thing about it is anything we can do to help these fighters not cut so much weight and fight closer to yes. their walk around weight, I think is, 
is good because as we know these guys kill themselves to make weight and then what do they do they rehydrate and then they walk into the cage and they're just like humongous and, and that's not healthy so if it would allow those guys to be healthier when they compete i i'm all for it i guess my question would be is there enough talent in strike force to to have that division or do you scrap 185 or something uh you know, I think you can make it work, and maybe there's more more people who say, "Hey, I want to be in strike force because I'm not the full on yeah. heavyweight." Yeah, it could have been a differentiator guy. for them. Maybe yeah. more guys would have gone there because they could have fought at a more comfortable weight. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I I agree. I mean, I don't think they had the depth to be able to do that. You know, and really because they would have sucked their 85 and 05 divisions dry. But then again, guys could get more fights. I mean, I I, I think it would have been worth a shot because it could again could have been a differentiator for strike force, but. Uh, Tis what it is, and it didn't happen. Looking ahead, we're still working on our next interview episodes, but on our next event episode, we'll be covering Strike Force Diaz versus Cyborg. Uh, that card features Nick Diaz defending the welterweight title against Cyborg Santos, not to be confused with Chris Cyborg, <laughs> although Chris Cyborg versus Nick Diaz would have been an interesting fight. In the uh, first and, intergender yeah, MMA yeah, match, God, no, Nick Diaz. <laughs> I'm not there for that. I am not there for that. Uh, as well as Jacques Ray Souza putting the middleweight belt on the line against Robbie Lawler. In addition, Herschel Walker does make his return, and we also see Rod Hodger Gracie back on a Strike Force card. And all four main card bouts ended in a decisive finish, so that should be a good one. Uh, again, you can find us on social media at the Hexagon Pod on Twitter and on on Instagram, and you can reach me at Phil at InsideTheHexagon.com. And as I always say, I would love to hear from you. I would love to hear from you if you like this new format where it's a little shorter. We shaved about 20, 25 minutes off of what our most of our event episodes are by doing it this way. And so I uh, would love to hear from you if you like it or if you like hearing, you know, what's going on with the UFC. We can always reintroduce that. Uh, but if we don't hear from you, we're not going to change it. So, <laughs> all right. But, Josh, I appreciate you taking the time to join us. Listeners, I appreciate you taking the time to download and listen. But with that, we're going to go ahead and ride off into the sunset. Hope that you stay safe and you stay healthy. And we will see you soon. <laughs> Hi, listeners. We wanted to take a moment to tell you about another podcast from Evergreen Podcasts and Sound Talent Media called Pit Lane Parlay. Pit Lane Parlay is the go-to podcast for IndyCar and motorsports-related news. Each episode, we discuss things like our favorite drivers, news clips from the last week, and generally giving each other a hard time about predictions we've made in the past and or life stories that have come up recently. We really have a lot of fun with it and really enjoy each other's company, and we hope you can come join us too. Join Pit Lane Parlay by following us on your favorite podcast today.